previously on Hacker Valley Blue. Oh my goodness, I cannot wait. We are doing something completely different. We're doing the very first season of Hacker Valley Blue. We're really going to be focusing on all things blue related in cybersecurity. Security engineers, architecture, threat hunters. But this season specifically, we're going to be highlighting threat intelligence and also understand some of the challenges, stories, and solutions that they've faced over the course of their career and what they're doing today. I I am so excited that we're going to bring Jack Resider back onto the podcast, and we're going to talk about bias, his storytelling. There's got to be a lot of bias that he's handling there. There's so many different types in threat intelligence, and I would love to hear how he manages that. This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. This Hacker Valley Blue episode is sponsored by Risk IQ. There are so many researchers and analysts that I know and trust that use Risk IQ's platform. Not to mention, I have personally leaned on Risk IQ while leading threat intelligence capabilities in my career. Risk IQ has been crawling and absorbing the internet so practitioners can leverage that data during investigations and research. If you want to learn more about Risk IQ, visit riskiq.com or jump down into the show notes for more information. In this episode, we have fan favorite Jack Resider from Darknet Diaries. We talk about his past with threat intelligence and how he manages a thing called bias when he's doing the show. Bias is something that every threat intelligence analyst deals with on a day-to-day basis. And with that, let's get right to this episode. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. And in this episode, we've brought back a guest a cybersecurity expert, and also someone who has created their own genre of podcasts while becoming one of the most streamed and listened podcasts today. It's a pleasure and honor to have back on the show, creator and host of Darknet Diaries podcast. Welcome back to the show, Jack Resider. Wait, where's all the clapping? I'm waiting for like a whole bunch of people to clap. <laughs> oh, dang it, Ron, you didn't bring the machine. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, it's rare. To, it's rare that I'm on a show twice, so this is really exciting. It, it means that I really like your show, and I'm excited to be here. It, it's definitely an honor. You know, we look up to you from so many perspectives, both your ability to tell stories and also your podcasting prowess. Thank you for being back on the show. I would love to hear a little bit about what you've been up to since the last time we spoke. Just more of the same, working on the podcast, Darknet Diaries. And it's one of those things that you got to put an episode out every two weeks. And so at the end of two weeks, I'm like, oh, right, I'm all done. It's done. But then I got to just start it all over again. So it's just never ending work. Yeah, I'm trying to reach for better, better stories and bigger stories and juicier ones. So we couldn't think of a better season to actually have you on. So this one is geared towards threat intelligence, something near and dear to both Ron and my heart. I spent about 12 years in the threat intelligence arena. And one thing that I think of when I think about threat intelligence is understanding the stories of the past. And if there's a threat intelligence person out there that isn't listening to your show, I think they definitely need to listen to your show because I think the thing that people remember the most, it isn't the the numbers, it isn't 
the outcomes most of the time is actually the stories. And that's one thing that you do really well is you can tell the story of something that happened on the dark side of the internet from the beginning to the end. And we talked about that a little bit before, but has your philosophy about that changed since we last spoke? And also, what are you looking forward to doing in the future from a storytelling perspective? (laughs) My favorite thing is to get the people who were there and experienced it firsthand to tell the story. So I think I'm just going to continue with that. But something I want to pull on that you said a second ago is threat intelligence is knowing what's happened in the past. And I think that is such a crucial thing to reemphasize because a lot of people think, oh, threat intelligence is this is this tool that I have to buy or this feed that I need that somebody's going to provide me because they know what's happened with these IPs or these domains. But I think it's important to start with threat intelligence, just looking at the historical events in your own network. One time I was in the NOC, so I was working as a NOC tech. This one outage went out in, I think it was Malaysia. It was like Friday, 4 p.m. in Malaysia, and all of a sudden the site goes down. And I'm like freaking out. I'm like trying to call over there. What's going on? How come the whole site is out? But then one senior knock tech said, wait a minute. I don't know what it was. It was like Chinese New Year or something. And they said, yeah, they always just shut down the office on Chinese New Year. And so he remembered from from Mm. last year that on Chinese New Year, they just shut down the office. They shut down all the power and everything for the whole building for the week. And so it was one of those things that just because we knew what the past was like meant we understand exactly what was going on in this particular moment. And so the most crucial thing I knew of for handling threat intelligence was just looking at the old tickets that we had and said, every time that something would happen, I would first search to see, has this ever happened before? Have we ever had incidents with this device, with this IP. So you got you to gotta kind of pivot on all the different things you have. So look at the device history, look at the IPs that are attacking, coming from, do we have any other attacks from those IPs at this time of day, at these ports? There's tons of things, these users, whatever we can just search our own historical stuff on. And if we don't have that stuff to search with, then, I mean, that's step one of threat intelligence is we need that history to look through. Absolutely. And when we think about history and also looking at the future, I think a lot about building a program that kind of encompasses all those things. And what's interesting about what you've done is you've created a program, but that highlights kind of like the crime meets cybersecurity and the story behind it that goes beyond what you just read in an article. What are some things that you ran into that you didn't expect when building this initially and also things that you're running into today that you didn't expect about highlighting this part of the story and looking at threat intelligence in this type of way. And there, there's things that surprised me. Like for instance, um, there was the attack on LVS, that's the Las Vegas Sands. And so this is when the CEO of the company, Sheldon Adelson, said something in a public forum that sparked outrage for a particular uh, country. A country was very mad at him for saying that publicly. And so that resulted in hackers from that country attacking the Las Vegas Sands Hotel and Casinos. And I was just so surprised to, I don't know, like, where, where do you put that in the threat model of, we have to be prepared if the CEO says something that's going to spark a lot of outrage? How does that factor in there? Because as soon as he says something like that, you have to start grabbing the the handrails and bracing for impact because something is probably going to come at you for that. If not just a bunch of outrage on Twitter, it's going to result in something else. That kind of stuff really makes me think about 
where do we go with, you know, do we have a risk officer or somebody like that to start analyzing this kind of risk? And that's stuff that I was learning about there. One thing that I, I love about your show, and this is kind of piggybacking off of what Ron said, when you're crafting your your episode, you have this intense focus on getting all of the information that you can about the story. For threat intelligence analysts, we're always looking at several things at once. Like there might be one incident going on over here. There might be an incident going on for infrastructure. There might be an incident going on for application security. We are usually smattered across the enterprise. What advice would you have for being able to at least have a 10% of that focus that you have for your stories? Like what drives you to get focus for your show? To me, I like the full story. It's different than threat and intelligence when you're defending a network or something, because I can check out this incident, <laughs> uh, you know, five years later and say, okay, right. what what's all the things that happened? So I can collect quite a lot of information after the fact, because I mean, for me, there's so many news reporters that have reported on this and, and videos that have come out and all kinds of things that I use to uh, base my information on. I think in the middle of an incident, you need to rely on whatever logging you have and pull up logs from from there. Or if you have a SIM, you can look at the events in the SIM or any security events that you might be able to access and grab as much as you can. I mean, I'm a fan of, of logs, uh, NetFlow, and, and full packet captures as places that you can go start looking for things. So right now you have what I would consider a pretty unique view on cybersecurity. You've shifted from a practitioner into someone that's more of providing the information, the news, the story for the listeners and also the practitioners. Do you see any parallels between kind of what you shifted into being like a content creator and a podcaster with being a practitioner? Yeah. I mean, I have to put good practice into use. To give you an example, I've got the Darknet Diaries website, right? And I've got, I've got a blog as well. And there are people poking at these things constantly all day because they're like, oh, I want to I want to show Jack how insecure his stuff is or oh, something. I don't know. Gracious. So, you know, they want me to, you know, they want to check to see if I know my stuff. So I've got that. And I get emails sometimes of the most benign bug, but there is one, right? Like, for instance, uh, Darknet Diaries can be loaded as an iframe. And this is something I didn't even know was like an issue. But if it's loaded as an iframe, then somebody could go to like another site, then load my site up as an iframe and start collecting credentials or something. However, there's no users on my site. So I don't know what you would really be able to collect. Yeah, the vulnerability is there, but there's no actual thing you can do with that vulnerability because there's no user data or anything on my site. And so I've got to be real careful. And, and so what I do on my sites, I usually use... Uh, Jekyll, which is a uh, static website creator. So it's just flat HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. There's no backend for any uh, users or database or anything like that. So there's no way somebody can do a MySQL injection because there's no SQL. There's no database. There's no PHP. There's no Ruby. There's nothing behind it. It's just flat HTML. So there's no footholds from what I can tell. And still people find like the littlest things of, of, of problems there. So yeah, I've got to be a good practitioner it's not just for that, but it's also because I want to understand what these threats are. I can't give advice or let things go into the show or whatever without actually understanding it and maybe even testing it in a lab environment or, or watching somebody do it 
before being able to explain it. And I think that's a that's kind of a big part of, of what I do is I, I try to explain complex topics in a simple way. Mm-hmm. And just recently I found some tool that was used in a hack in one of the stories and, and I just couldn't understand what this tool did. I, I read it. I read the the GitHub notes like 10 times, like what are you saying? This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so I had to find like other bloggers that explain how to use it and stuff. And finally I got it and it makes sense. And actually the description was, was spot on. I just didn't, <laughs> the words just didn't line up for me. One thing that's the enemy of a uh or at least not an enemy, but something that we have to be cognizant of as threat intelligence analysts is bias. And coming from the government, coming from an operations background, being in security operations for as long as I've been, it's easy to kind of look at the other side as just the enemy, right? Just someone that's bad, that's trying to do bad things. But one thing that I've really learned from like listening to your show is that Even though they might be doing things that we might not want them to do, there's still people at their core. You share their stories as almost like unbiased as you can, because like I really empathize with some of the folks that you've brought on that have been flagged as as a criminal. But then they come on your show and they sound very, very human. They they have a past. They have a, a personal story that they have. What are your best practices for checking your own bias? I think that might be one of my, I don't know if I want to say superpower, but I really try to like, what I do is when I, when I hear someone's story and something is just absolutely disgusting to me and I hate that person or whatever this case is, right? I always have to say, okay, put all those feelings to the side now. What do you feel after that? And I, I have to do a double check and say, what could be the possible scenario that I agree with this person? What would be their, their mindset or their motivation or their, or whatever to where I agree with them. If I'm thinking of it like that, then I'm looking for reasons to agree with them. Okay. So once I get to that state where I completely agree and understand with them, now I'm stuck in this really strange situation where I absolutely hate what they've done. I know it's disgusting, but yet I totally agree with them. And I love that in storytelling specifically of let me give you both sides and I want you to walk away not knowing which side like to be on because it's right. totally horrible what this guy did and yeah. you totally understand exactly and you would probably do the same thing if you were in that situation or something. And so it wrecks you as a listener of like, I don't know anything. <laughs> I love that. But yeah, I mean, you, you have that definitely in the sock as well of, oh yeah, I know what this attack is and then you you think it is and then it's something else. So you, you have to be, you have to watch out for that and just constantly be thinking, what else could it be? What's another option here of why this happened? And I think I'm just naturally good at thinking of things like that, of trying to come up with other options of why. I, I used to, when I was first as a security engineer, somebody would ask me, like I would want to do an upgrade on a firewall or something. And the the customer would ask me, well, what's the, What's the risk here? And boy, I, I would always say, I would always just go back and forth in my head like, well, 98% sure that I'm going to get this done without crashing the whole network, but there's 2% chance. And well, what's the 2% chance? Well, you know, lightning could strike or car could crash into the building or, you know, I might, you know, upload the wrong file or something. Like there's all these things that I had to just let go because those, <laughs> those are things that are probably never going to happen. And I just had to tell the customer, like, I have a high confidence that this is going to work instead of a 2% chance it might not work, just high right. confidence and stick with that. So yeah, there's bias on both sides of trying to find reasons why this won't work, why your script is going to fail or why this upgrade is going to fail or whatever. You have to know that 
And then it also reasons why your assessment may not be accurate. So I have to ask, has there, since you mentioned that story, has there ever been a time where you really liked the story at first? And then as you learned more about the story or the person, it's like, it goes the opposite direction where it's, you actually like the story or, or individual less. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, I mean, one of the ones that comes to mind is the Iowa courthouse story. I talked about this one where I feel like I painted the story in such a way that we hated the sheriff of that town so bad at the end. And I didn't mean to do that. When I published it, so many people hated the sheriff. And I don't know if it was because of me or not, but the sheriff did say that he got a lot of hate mail after the incident. I don't think it was from my show, but it was just regarding the whole story. And I didn't know that, right? And so I just piled on. I just did a dog pile on the sheriff. But I mean, if we think about it, the sheriff has a lot of experience, a lot of responsibility. He's doing what he can, what he wants to do best. And I didn't go deep enough to get his side and get his story. And there was actually some footage of him. It was crazy because he actually talked about this in a, in a security conference at one point. And I didn't find that. I didn't dig deep enough to get that. And I didn't take the time to even call him to see if he wanted to talk. And so I made this villain and I feel like, you know, maybe he wasn't a villain. I didn't give him a chance. Right. And so I just felt bad about that. And I felt like I was too far biased on one side of that story of like, these guys shouldn't have been taken in by the sheriff in that story. I think the sheriff should have been more lenient, but that was my opinion. I hadn't, we had no opinions from the sheriff's side. And, you know, I kind of felt not like a very good journalist in that sense, because everyone walked away with one side of it. Right. And I think whether you're like, we're kind of on the topic of threat intelligence and also what you do best podcasting. I think either way, once you share information in that regard, you share details about something that might be sensitive or unknown previously, you might get some backfire and some backlash. Have you gotten any of that since you started your podcast? Oh, like people who don't want their story to be known or something? No, more so uh, people upset with the information that you've provided. Listeners, random people on Reddit or Twitter. I talk about some crazy stories. So we talk about, (laughs) gosh, what's it called? Uh, Revenge porn, right? So we we talk about that. We talk about Israel, talk about Bangladesh, uh, not Bangladesh, but the war between India and Pakistan. And in between is Kashmir, right? So you've got all these three different parts of that one. And, um, yeah, whenever I get into stories like that and, you know, if I start talking about sexualities and stuff, then there are people who mention things like, oh, you didn't take this side into consideration or you weren't careful enough with these kind of words and stuff. The language you use was not as accurate as you could be. I get some information. I get extra information. And usually I use that to, to make the new episodes better, or I can even go back. So in the latest episode, I used the term slave owner, which I didn't mean to. I actually found it in in my script and I said, oh, I don't want to use that. And I took it out because, I mean, currently in the situation in China is that there are people who are, there's this human and sex trafficking rings. And so I was writing the word slave owner in that sense, but I don't want to give anyone the title of owner of another person. And I just think that that's completely inappropriate. So I took that out, but it was actually written in the script two or three times and I forgot to do it on the other, the other ones. And somebody wrote to me and, and complained and I immediately 
got on the mic and re-recorded it and re-uploaded it because I don't want to give anyone that title because it's just not appropriate anymore. And so, yeah, I mean, I get the random people telling me these are things that I should be more considerate of. And the funnest ones are when I get, there's always somebody who contacts me who's very familiar with the case. Either they went to the same school as that person or they know that person or something. And I love asking those people all the kinds of follow-up questions. Like, did I get the story right? What was this part about? What was that part about? Like things that were a little bit gray area for me. And I'll sometimes go in and update that. And yeah, I've gotten some pretty interesting phone calls from people who are uh, in some kind of secret positions or, or government positions that have given me a little bit extra info. And it's, it's really fun to have those conversations. I think both what you mentioned with the sheriff and even the the words that you use is an incredible insight because quite often intel analysts will get judged based on a single report if they if they make a mistake if they oversubscribe to a viewpoint they can get completely hammered and then as a professional they might lose their credibility especially if it's going out public like going out wide and and, and maybe it's on a website somewhere and they they get destroyed and they get they get that backlash that we were kind of just talking about with your show, you've got you've done so many episodes and each time you're getting better. You learn the thing about maybe I should go a little bit deeper next time. If I'm going to have like this villain in a story, maybe I should reach out to them. How does that come out in practice? Like, what are you going to do the next time that there is somebody that we could easily like all turn and hate as the villain? But what are you going to do next time with all that new information? Like there's a couple stories I want to cover where the, the hacker was a snitch. That's going to be very interesting. Ooh, that is in going to be interesting. In the security community, because a lot of hackers listen to the show and they really hate snitches. So it's just one of those things. But I empathize with people who are in such a terrible situation, a rock bottom on their whole life. They've they've been conducting crimes like crazy all the way up to this point. And now their whole life is threatened, right? They're either going to go... like What I have to do is possibly take sides here, right? So this is something I've been thinking about for a while is do I do I try to make the the person make sense? As a story writer, I can write the story, even though it's still accurate and truthful, I can still put it in a certain light. I can add that music to make you think, oh, right. let's sympathize with this person, or I can add yep. whatever to kind of frame it. I've got to figure out how to how to work with this to be I don't know. I don't know what the what uh, how I want to portray it. If it's just let's color this person as a total jerk for snitching or what, and it's hard to uh, yeah, it's hard to figure out what to do here because there's so many people that hate it, and I think that they they might be blinded by just don't ever tell on someone without realizing what that situation is like. I mean, yeah, we could go into that, but that's one that I, I grapple with, and I think. Even the people who snitch feel terrible about it, absolutely terrible. And I think that's the common thing is everyone doesn't like that. The only people who like it are the feds who can lock people up, I guess. Right. It's funny that you mentioned that because one thing that I was talking to one of my friends about was working for the government. I feel like almost putting yourself in that situation where you're uncovering the hacker and that might be just trying to make a living. In a way, it's kind of like snitching. Well, I I think I want to try to give people the benefit of the doubt who are trying to capture these people. And I think that they just want to help people. 
I don't think it makes them happy to lock up a ton of people, especially like teenagers who are just strewn around. I think they want to come in and help. I just don't think they have the resources to help. I mean, I've heard so many stories about federal agents and stuff who go to arrest a father or mother, but there's the kid. And so they have to take care of the kid that day. And it just breaks their heart. Like they totally screwed up this whole family or the family screwed up themselves, but now they have to like deal with this kid. And uh, like, what do you do? Like, and it's just, it it hurts them. So, I mean, they don't want to mess up families. They just want to help and I think that's their goal. And it ends up being that last step is, okay, well, there's no help. We need to lock this person up. I mean, yeah, that's a good question, right? Do, mm-hmm. do feds who are actively searching for, for criminals online and posing as buyers or sellers or whatever it is that they're posing and acting like hackers themselves, are they just as bad as snitches? I don't know. It's just, I guess it's their job. So it's not as bad because you know, you know they're out there looking for you. I feel like it's in this day and age, especially with social media and things like that, it's so easy to dehumanize someone, individual or population. And it's something that I I feel like there needs to be more emphasis on trying to fix that. Because at the end of the day, we're all human beings and human beings are flawed. And when you start to overgeneralize like the the intent and the motivations of people like across the board is where you run into issues. Like we go back to that that bias situation. What is something that you could share? Because it, it sounds like you have this this skill to to understand the core of somebody, their, their human soft center, right? What is something you would like to tell people out there that are listening right now? Like how how can people change that viewpoint from it being just words on a page or an image or this generalization that they have in their head and actually start to look at all people as people. That's another thing I feel like I'm decent at is <laughs> getting to that. Exactly. And bringing that out in my show, because you know that I, I really want to hear that person's side and I want to hear their voice as they explain it, because I think we connect so much better when we do. So, I mean, that's, that's how I get to it is that we hear what they sound like. And as they explain what they did, you get a much better sense, a much better sense of a person when they talk. I don't know why, but I, I, I've always learned that's the case. Just listen to them with their voice and not so much typing. Sometimes it just totally changes. I guess I'm just uh, somebody who empathizes with people a lot. And I recognize that people are still humans. Like, like when 9-11 happened, nobody could understand. Like I was thinking early on, I was like, there's something that our government might have done to be part of this because there was it was just too weird. I don't know. I was just you know, young and formidable into conspiracy theories at the time, and nobody would would agree with me. Like, oh no, there's no way our government would do this. Well, I would just argue that there's no way anyone in the whole planet would do this. This is such a horrible, horrible experience. Yet some humans did do it. This is the extent that a human being, period, could do it then any human being could do it because that's just how any humans could do it. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. It's just a matter of that fact that a human did it. So that's just an example of humans can do weird and crazy things and you don't understand them. You don't know why and and there's all these reasons. And so I, I, I just feel like I need to know more. And that I guess that's another one of those things where 
my initial reaction towards someone, and I need to put it aside and understand what's that second reaction, what's that third one? How do I connect with this person? What is it? What are they saying that I can agree with them and not think that what they're saying is against me or something? And you know, I get like feedback for the show, and it's I don't want to take it negatively or something like that. I don't want to be like, okay, this person's actually trying to help me. You know, let's work together. We're on the same team, so things like that. Where I I, I just do a kind of a double check on. How can I make this a positive experience? And kind of thinking back to superpowers, you mentioned that that's part of your superpower. And one of the pieces of information you gave us last time you were on the show was that you kind of tuned and made yourself better by watching the Pixar course on storytelling and also a course on Khan Academy. What are some things that you're doing today to kind of double down on your superpower of finding these stories, telling these stories and understanding them. I've been listening to a lot of audiobooks and there's so much good stuff in audiobooks. There's a section of the bookstore that has like a whole bunch of hacking stories. So we've got Sandworm, which is the one by Andy Greenberg. And mm-hmm. I did an episode on that, not Petya and stuff. Countdown to Zero Day, which had Stuxnet. American Kingpin, I thought was great. Dark Territory by Fred Kaplan. Michael Hayden playing to the edge. You guys know who Michael Hayden is, right? Do, yes. I'm trying to remember. What what was his uh, title? General. General of the NSA? No, I th- I don't remember what, what he was, but he was a general in the army, I believe. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he was one of the intelligence generals, though. Actually, he might have been the director of NSA before uh, General Alexander. Okay. I think that makes sense. And what what's fascinating about that book is I think it takes a totally opposite viewpoint from all these other ones where we kind of look at the the intelligence agencies sometimes as bad guys where it's like, oh, you're you're overreaching and you've got no oversight on what NSA is doing and you know, they're just doing all this stuff without any checks and balances. Like they're just hacking whatever and and all these things. We 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 point a lot of fingers, you know, especially after Snowden and stuff. We're just like, look at this. Nobody's like they're just doing whatever. But Michael Hayden on the book Playing to the Edge explained why that's not the case. And they do follow a lot of the rules and they are very specific on the rules. And I, I'm not sure how much this is propaganda or what, you know, because it's it's ex-director of, of an intelligence agency giving this book out. But it helps me understand that opposite side. And I always, always looking to understand that other side. Mm-hmm. And so it, it helps me have talking points and stuff like that to be able to say why when we hack into Angela Merkel's phone, it makes sense, <laughs> something like that, right? So, but just tons of books like that are are really helpful. And the other one that helps me uh, understand things are Schneier's blog. Yeah, he's got some really good insights. And so somebody's actually narrating his blog post so into a podcast and that I listen to every one of those episodes. Oh, really? I'm listening to his uh, articles. That's pretty cool. One thing that I think about, and this is something that you're constantly working on as an intelligence analyst, is making products that people actually want to digest, whether it's a briefing or it's a article that you write or even like a longer formed version of a, an intelligence product. But how do you actually convey this information in a way that actually grabs the reader while also being as factually adherent to the facts as possible. And there's a lot of people that just don't have a handle on that because they they might have all the facts, 
But if someone's not willing to read it just because of the tone, someone's not willing to read it because it's not interesting, it's not applicable to them, then you you basically wasted your time. What are the tenants that you use for yourself and for your show to make sure that your show is appealing to other people? Is there any secret sauce to, to your show? I first was working as a security engineer in a NOC and a SOC for, for 10 years before making the show. And during that time, I was blogging. And that blog is called tunnelsup.com. And it was just basically like when I'm searching for stuff online and I don't find, because I hit a problem as an engineer and I don't find the answer or it's buried deep in the Cisco documentation, I'll just blog about what my problem was and what my solution was. And so after 10 years of blogging, it was like I was practicing how to write things simply because I'm going to reread this in a year when I have that same problem or my colleagues are going to reread it or somebody from the internet's going to read it. And I just want them to have the easiest experience possible. And I'm so sick of reading like lab manuals or, or test preps where they complicate the, the problem, like in a million times more complicated than it needs to be. Like we're just trying to get a packet from one device to another and you've got 20 devices also in here. There's no reason for 20 devices. We just need two devices, right? Why is this lab so complicated? <laughs> I hated certain things. And that, I guess that's one of the things like you, you watch a YouTube video and the quality is so terrible and you're like, I could do better than this. And you, and you start making a YouTube video on it and it's just because you want a better one. So it's the same thing with me on blogging. But what helped me do is practice explaining complex stuff as simple as possible. And I would revisit articles and make it simpler and simpler and simpler or something. And, and so I think that's where another thing that I'm good at is, is, is doing that, is explaining complex topics in a way that anyone can understand. That translates into the show pretty well. As I'm explaining things, I'll I'll rewrite a paragraph like four or five times to explain it a little bit better. And of course, I've got to be explaining it for the year. So I can't just like throw a bunch of numbers at you or, mm-hmm. or acronyms that it's just you're not following because it's just hard to understand. So it's really complex. I feel like I'm walking on a on a razor on that one because I want to include both the technical people that deal with this every day like like you guys and i want to include people who are just curious tech curious who might be a mechanic or a doctor or something but they're fascinated with the tech world that's all around us so they listen too and i get a lot of people who do listen from that side and so the tech curious don't understand when i start breaking down hacking tools or malware or something into technical analysis. And it's okay if I lose them. I just don't want to lose them for like more than 30 seconds or a minute. And then I'll I'll come back with like a a punch of music or something to revigorate them back into the show. And then the other side who may be already super deep in this and have done extensive analysis can listen and say, oh, shoot, I'm learning stuff here. I didn't realize (laughs) that this stuff was there. And I love including both sides into this. And yeah, maybe those pe- other those people would be bored in other sections. And so um, I, I should have chose one or the other, but I never did. I've always tried to be right on the fence and grabbing both audiences. And that's been a very difficult thing to accomplish, but I keep doing it somehow. It's funny because I was literally just about to ask you about all of that. That's a problem that we ran into because some episodes like anybody could listen to, like my wife listens to, my mom, my dad could listen to it and they could actually understand it all the way from end to end. But then we'll have episodes where we're looking at mathematical models and red teaming. And it's just kind of like, we just go so deep, so deep (laughs) Mm -hmm. into the tech of things. Uh, And it's just, it's just such an interesting mix. 
like listening to you talk about it, thinking about our show, like more of an art than a science. Like you can't say, okay, I'm going to 30 minutes, I'm going to have stuff that everybody's going to enjoy. And then 30 minutes, we're going to go technical. It's almost like you just kind of have to feel it because even as like hosts ourselves, there might be parts of the story that we want to dive deep into. We want to go as technical as possible because we are also following along in the story and there might be other people out there like us. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, one of the storytelling techniques is to keep moving. So like every 90 seconds or so, let's do a new scene kind of like, right? Mm -hmm. So as long as you just keep moving, I think people might be bored for 90 seconds, but then they'll be back and be ready for the next thing. Right. You know, during the time of us recording this, this is still, we're in lockdown due to COVID and whatnot. One of the things that I've always respected about you is your OPSEC. Your OPSEC is really good, especially (laughs) for finding pictures of you. So I got to ask, do you miss like going out to conferences and whatnot? Or is it somewhat better because you are someone that likes to maintain the privacy? You know, this guy, Mike Bazell, he he does mm -hmm. the OSINT podcast. He's got the same thing, right? His OPSEC is spot on. I'm pretty sure that's not even his real name, right? Like all these things. (laughs) He's he's written four books at this point and all this stuff. And I was talking to him about this. He actually gives public speeches at conferences. So he'll get on stage and give talks. And I'm like, how is it that your picture's not all over the internet? And he's like, okay, right. <laughs> I've got, I've, I've made deals with, uh, you know, I have like a speaking agent and I make sure that no photos are allowed at this conference. And so the only time he speaks are when it's never recorded, photographs are not allowed, like kind of like a sky talk kind of thing. Right. And so he gives talks all over and, and meets with people and everything. So yeah, it's just one of those things that you have to pick and choose which things you want to uh, allow. And I'll I'll give you a story here. When I was first getting into like making YouTube videos, I I was making some some home projects, right? I was making like a a solar oven and solar panels and a hot water heater like from the sun and stuff because I just like making these random projects. And somebody liked it so much that they started trying to figure out where I was in the world. Like they noticed a feature in the background oh, wow. and they, they Googled it. And then they found like my name because I did say my name on there and all this stuff. And they, they triangulated it and they figured out where I was and they looked at Google Maps to find my house and what? all these things. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And they were messaging me on YouTube, but I wasn't seeing the messages. So then they went further and they said, okay, well, who owns this house? Let's look at the county records. And they found like my extra information off that. And then they say, okay, where's this guy work? And they found my work email and they emailed me at work and said, Hey, I'm such a big fan of your YouTube channel. And I was like, <laughs> wow. okay. Yeah. Biggest so fan ever. <laughs> like and that. so since then I've been just really careful and cautious about what I've done. So I took that video down and I, I changed a lot of details. I moved. <laughs> <laughs> so you know you, i just you kinda, didn't move because of that did you not because of that no oh, but okay, i have okay. and so when you move you got a fresh start right you know yeah, okay right. let's not have anyone ever send me anything to my house you know amazon is not going to know my address and all these other companies don't know where i live and all these things let's get a peel box or a mailbox somewhere make sure everything goes there and you start fresh when you start when you move you can start fresh on all this stuff and yeah i'm a big privacy advocate so it's one of those things i want to practice as well Yeah, I think that's phenomenal. That's definitely lessons that Intel analysts, especially ones that are super public, because you're really, you're kind of poking the bear in some ways because you're releasing information about people 
probably not in this country and another country they're very technically savvy and so you got to protect yourself by any means necessary and so like really like taking some of those opsec modules like to heart is super important but for the folks out there that do want to be out and they they kind of want to be that beacon how would you recommend the folks that are super in the public eye they do the talks they do allow photos and things like that their pictures up on linkedin and and twitter and things like that how would you recommend the folks that are pushing the envelope for getting stuff out there while staying opsec and on my desk here there's a book called extreme privacy what it takes to disappear <laughs> <laughs> that and it's written fantastic. it's written by mike bazell so it's the guy i was talking about <laughs> yeah and this is a 600 page book oh on how to gosh. stay secure online which i think is overkill but in so i mean here's the problem there's some online harassment and stalking that goes on yeah. right so especially right. like for for exes so you've got a husband wife they broke up or something and now the husband has some sort of crazy thing that they want to ruin their ex-wife's life or something so they break into her webcam and or you know their google home cameras and can watch when she's coming home or not he knows her passwords to this and that and he keeps getting in every time she changes passwords so something is persistent on there this brings it so close to home that our most trusted person our our spouse could be our worst nemesis and enemy when it comes to being hacked and mm. like these are things that he really covers a lot in his book is how to get away from situations like that. So I think if you're going to be on the public figure, that's a whole nother thing as well. You've got to do best practices. You can't do things like, like for instance, if you're doing work on one computer, like, you know, if you're making tons of money, like for instance, if you're an online poker player or something, right? So you're making tons of money in online poker, don't use that computer to like screw around on the internet and do other yeah. random things, right? You've got to, that's a business computer right. and that's only for work and you got to use another one. So you got to separate devices and stuff. I think the things that make the most impact for everyone are getting a password manager and having a different unique password complex one for every website you go to updating your software. So that's your operating system, your apps, everything that you have that's updatable, keep it updated and get an antivirus. And those things I think will make it very difficult for other people to do things. And every time you, every time you switch relationships, every time you break up with someone, change all your passwords. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to ask, what about for those that are subscribed to the same OPSEC model that you and Mike do and are super private? Would you recommend giving your password to someone, you know, God forbid all things come to an end, you've literally locked everyone and maybe even your spouse out of all of the accounts that maybe they need access to in an emergency situation. How would you recommend someone get that type of access if they ever needed to? Oh, so like in, in if something ever happened to you. Yes. Now, yeah, that's a that's an interesting thing. I have discussions with with some people about that, like. Do you want to be my digital custodian in case something goes wrong? Right. <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, I saw Schneier. What's his first name? I can't remember his first Bruce? name. Bruce Schneier. He wrote something. I think I swear it was, it was on his blog. He said, it's okay to write your password down and put it in your wallet. Because anyone who's going in your wallet, <laughs> it's not going to, it's a safe place, right? Your right. money's kept in there and all this like special private stuff. Like if they, if they can grab your driver's license, your money, your credit cards, 
yeah, you might as well give them your password too, because they've got <laughs> right. everything. So he, I mean, he's like, that's fine. You're not posting it online or somewhere where there's a lot of people like who's going to be seeing it or fondling it. This is your wallet that you're the only one who ever touches. So, I mean, I think in cases where you have, I haven't done it yet, but I think having a password written down physically and then that's the like the master password to your password manager and then having that in a safe place like a safe or a vault <laughs> and then your your digital custodian knows the password <laughs> to that vault then i think that's a fair thing to do there was this world of one story that started it where it was and i think it i don't know what happened after i need to look into it but there was a a crypto company in canada and all of a sudden, the the owner disappeared and was murdered in India and took Ooh. $200 million in Bitcoin with them or something like that. Oh. Nobody else had the access to that crypto wallet. So that whole company had to go under. But Oof. Uh, there might be more to that story. And I got to look into it. Oh, Ooh. man. Might Sounds be like another episode. episode. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Jack. It's always an honor to have you on the show. Really appreciate it. I think people are going to get a lot from this episode. For folks that want to stay up to date with you, all the stuff that you have going on, your excellent show, what are the best ways people could do that? Darknetdiaries.com is where you can find the show. And I'm most active on Twitter. I'm on all the social medias, but Twitter as uh, Jack Resider. Awesome. We will be sure to include all of that. Truly appreciate it, Jack. And we'll see everybody next time. Mm -hmm.